it's like, you know, sort of you went to like a wet market, like a bazaar kind of thing. But instead of like pork and beads and art or whatever, there's just selling every variety of the electronic animal. They just carved it up in little pieces and you could buy the different cuts and put them together and make your own, you know, sort of electronic roast at home at the end of the day, right? And I remember standing at the bridge and just being like, God, what I would give to have every top U.S. lawmaker just stand here for 30 seconds and take in the magnitude of economic activity and excitement and the energy of the scene. It's like nothing else that I've, that I've ever experienced. Is so much energy there, so much motivation, so much excitement, so much potential. Everywhere I looked, everything was like, every corner had a different surprise. Every corner had someone doing something new and interesting, finding a different way to do a different thing. And every single time I went back to the market, I was just gobsmacked by the things I would see there. That's Andrew Bunny Wong. He's talking about the former electronics market in Shenzhen, China, a place where, to be frank, the American approach to patents and copyrights doesn't really apply. Instead, it's a place where people copy, tweak, improve, and modify actual stuff like phones and other electronics, and then sell it openly, without serious fear of punishment. Is that a good thing? Well, maybe. I'm Cindy Cohen, the executive director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And I'm Jason Kelly, EFF's associate director of digital strategy. This is our podcast series, How to Fix the Internet. The idea behind this show is that we're trying to fix the internet. We're trying to make our digital lives better. You know, EFF spends a lot of time talking about all the ways that things can go wrong and jumping into the fight when things do go wrong. But what we'd like to do with this podcast, you know, for all of us, is to give us a vision of what the world looks like if we get it right. That, of course, includes everything from the way our networks work to actually the way our physical devices work and how they're built and innovated on. Our guest this episode is Andrew Bunny Huang. He's a security researcher and a hardware hacker with a long history in reverse engineering. Nearly two decades ago, he wrote a widely respected book called Hacking the Xbox, and since then, he's served as a research affiliate for the MIT Media Lab and a technical advisor for several hardware startups. Bunny, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Let's start off with my phone. I have a decent phone. It's not the brand new model, but it's pretty new. It can do a ton of stuff. But what can't it do? What's wrong with the phone that I have that you would like to fix or change? Well, if you start with an iPhone, it's um, it's pretty locked down. There's a lot of things you can't do with it. You have to have Apple's permission to essentially put software on it. I actually myself routinely avoid Apple phones because I find them really frustrating to use. But I had a little bit of experience trying to, for example, do some stuff with like GPS and some sensors on it. And um, I can't get raw sensor data. I was getting some sanitized versions of the of the GPS logs. I could tell that didn't make sense for, for what I was putting into it. And it was really frustrating to me. So that's an example of something that you can't do with it that I like to do with it. But the, you know, there's a whole bunch of other things that are difficult to do with it. Like you can't, it's hard to fix them. It's hard to repair them. It's hard to reuse them in any particular meaningful way. It's hard to incorporate them into another product. There's a whole bunch of things that are problematic 
you know, what the, what the phone is, is today. Yeah, you know, our, our dear friend Peter Eckersley, who passed away, mm. recently called Apple the crystal prison, right? Yeah, yeah. It's really beautiful. <laughs> it's really shiny. But there are hard limits on what you can do if you are the kind of person who wants to innovate and take things in a direction that Apple doesn't want you to go. That's a great metaphor, crystal prison. Yeah. So what's what's holding back this kind of innovation? What's in your way? Well, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that prevent us from doing the things we want to do with it. And and I guess, you know, first I want to sort of frame it by thinking about sort of some of the things that could be different if we could do the things I want to do with it, right? So, Oh, excellent. Let's look at this shiny world that Bunny could build us. Well, not just me, anybody, right? I mean, that's, that's, the, <laughs> the, that's the exciting part about it. I, I think actually a really good real world example of what could happen if phones became more open actually does exist. If you look at the company DJI, the one that makes the drones out of China, right? Yep. The early drones they made, if you took them apart, were basically smartphones with four brushless motors on them, hmm. right? <laughs> In Shenzhen, at the particular time when they're starting up, the whole kind of Shanzai movement um, where phones were sort of being copied and the plans were out there and the circuit boards were being circulated were very prevalent and very available. So you could basically rip, mix, and burn with the palette of cell phone ingredients. Yep. And so when these people... We're presented with the challenge of we need something that's very lightweight, battery powered, powerful, has a good camera, has a full feature software stack on the inside. Instead of having to go and build everything from the bottom up and deal with all sorts of stuff, they were basically able to sort of rip, mix, burn, take out portions of the cell phone guts, put them into a lightweight frame, put motors on it, and they had a kind of a revolutionary new drone, right? That kind of took the world by storm. And kind of the inverse story of that is some hardware startups are doing things like medical diagnostics. Mm -hmm. And it would be really helpful uh, for them to, in low volume, be able to create a diagnostic device. For example, they can stick something in your mouth that has a camera on it to look for disease and these sorts of things. These beg for basically a, a smartphone with a nice camera on them. But all these startups, particularly when they come from the West, are stymied by the inability to go ahead and take these components and incorporate them into their devices. <laughs> they're, they're actually having to sort of backtrack. You know, they, they live in the country that ostensibly has the rights to produce the world's best iPhone, but they go to China to go and figure out how to access that technology to put it back into the products they're developing in America. Right? So <laughs> this weird, bizarre, why are we running across the entire globe to go ahead and do this? And what are the factors that brought us to the point where this becomes like the accepted normal thing to do? Um, that That is sort of like the the counterpoint to sort of the example you see that happened with DJI, for example. Well, I see that you're coming at this from a really unique perspective as sort of a builder, right? Mm. And I can see how as you're creating a product or a piece of hardware, having access to all these different facilities, potential tools is really helpful. But I think a lot of us come at this from the perspective of, frankly, a user, right? Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to say consumer, but a user. Mm -hmm. And as an example, if you mentioned IoT devices, when I'm trying to buy something that will turn on my lights or something like that, right? with my smartphone, what I want is something that connects to as many protocols as possible mm -hmm. so that I know that in the future I'm not limited. Yeah. But mm -hmm. companies don't tend to do that, right? It seems like what they want is to put you in that in that crystal Absolutely. that yeah, crystal yeah. prison. Right. Mm -hmm. What what's the kind of benefit to them and, and what are they what's their thinking? To me this is like classic 
uh, rent-seeking behavior, right? And so rent-seeking behavior is one of those terms that I actually didn't understand fully until I kind of read the Wikipedia page on it. So I'll just sort of say my version that I understand it out loud to make sure we're all on the same page. It, the, the example I read was that, like, you know, you have a river and boats are going through it and doing commerce. And then someone gets the bright idea that they can put a chain across the river and then charge people for removing the chain. And so the person who has put the chain across the river is collecting rent from the river, but not adding any particular value to the river. The whole economic value they bring is actually removing obstruction that they introduced in the first place. By definition, that type of behavior is the most profit you can generate for the least amount of effort. Mm -hmm. So in an economic system that rewards maximize profits for minimum effort, rent-seeking behavior is really, really typical and very common, right? So the whole idea of locking people into um, devices, you can make essentially make much more money, much more value, extract much more rent out of a resource by erecting barriers rather than simply allowing commerce to travel uh, down the river. I think that's all true. I mean, look, there's a benefit to creating a zone of scarcity. You know, that's that's why it's in the American Constitution that, you know, in order to promote sciences and the useful arts, we're going to have a patent system. So we understand that there that that some scarcity, some limiting can help support innovation. Mm -hmm. And then the question is, how do you you know, what's the right time frame or scope Absolutely. to make that all work? So I think that at least from our perspective, we would never say that there's no, there ought to be no ability to control something. But I think that the the sense that, that I'm hearing from you is that, you know, we're actually overprotected and now innovation is suffering as a result of overprotection. Right. But the reason that we put it into the constitution is the idea that we recognize that some protection will help. If you're going to take a risk, uh, you know, you should be able to have a reward. Um, and so you know, whatever, if you're the person who cleaned up the river so that people who go through it, maybe you should have a period of time where you can collect rent and recover that investment. That's That totally makes sense. It gives you incentive to go ahead and, and make ways more passable for other people at the end of the day. The problem is, is that it just turns out that one of the most high reward activities you can do is to take that rent and invest it in extending your lease longer yep. effectively mm-hmm. than was originally intended. So there's a certain amount of time it takes to go ahead and collect the investment and, and make it profitable and give you incentive. But then there's this huge extra time that's been added over and over again by revising the laws and pushing that out longer. If you look at the original time that was allotted in the Constitution, it's much shorter than the current limits today. Yep. Um, and, so, and so I would be a fan, actually, of sort of, you know, this original interpretation of what the extent should be. The problem is there's different categories of investment. There are some things that generally do take 10, 20 years to really come to fruition. So you may want to seek protection and really do a, a long slog to it. But there's a ton of stuff, particularly in technology. 20 years is an eternity. Well, we've been talking a little bit about patents. We've talked about copyrights. There's also Section 1201, the anti-circumvention provisions and the Computer Fraud and Abuse Acts and contractual terms. There's there's an array of laws that turn out to be Rent Seeker Protection Acts. Right. Am I right? Am I listing all these? Obviously, we represent you in a little (laughs) case called Green versus DOJ that's on the anti-circumvention provisions. But can you talk a little bit about how these these kind of laws are are creating obstacles to the cool new phones and other things yeah. you might want to build when you're first talking about like why we can't load stuff onto the iphone it's, it's 
not specifically the copyright defense, but Section 1201 really that 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 really puts a chill on a ton of innovation. It, the effect is incredibly chilling, actually, because as an entrepreneur, as a person who's a tech, you know, just into technology or an engineer or a geek hanging around, the threat that you could be exposed to legal liability is often enough to scare these people away. And so someone goes ahead and starts, you know, doing maybe what they naturally do, figuring out how to go ahead and jailbreak an iPhone and put some application and whatever it is. And then one of their friends tells them, by the way, do you realize, you know, I, there's this law, you can read it just as well as I do. And it's just these penalties and these fines, and you can go to jail and there's all sorts of stuff. So when people really start thinking about it, they're like, man, I could innovate or I could just go home and like, you know, not get involved in this whole mess and walk away from it. Yep. I remember when we were working on an open hardware startup called Chumbi. We we're trying to build this little device before the iPhone existed that could uh, stream content and that sort of thing. And YouTube was around. It was a thing. But the content was not coded in the right format for us, right? It was it was mm -hmm. too heavy for our little device. And we're like, oh, but we could transcode it. We can buy servers. We can do this sort of stuff. And then someone's like, but the DMCA. Yep. And then we were just like, oh, but you're right. And it would cause so much trouble. And we don't have the money to fight it. And we're just a little startup. And so oh, I guess we won't have videos on our product. And, yeah. and, and mm -hmm. you know, that's just, that's like classic chilling effect, right? That's a, and, and, yep. and maybe today people will point out and say, well, well, you know, people transcode stuff all the time and it's fine, whatever it is. It's been said. But very large companies with lawyers have taken the risk and done this sort of stuff. And all these little innovators essentially were scared away out of the pool. Yeah. I think that's right. And these are the people that EFF helps. But of course, we can't help everybody. But this this idea that innovation can only come from a big company that can afford to negotiate and pay a lot of terms and all of that, like we leave a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think I think the cycle does have a tendency to repeat in every ecosystem, because what happens is that when you go to a green field, everyone's a small player and everyone has a fair shake. Hmm. But then the first one to sort of rise up and get big realizes they came from nothing, so could their competition. So we should use this legal system to go ahead and and prevent competition, essentially. We don't want, you know, the best use of our money is not actually to plow more money into engineering and R&D, but actually to go ahead and create a barrier for the competition. So, like, for example, when Japan was coming up, they copied a lot of American technology to create the first transistor radios and to create the first cars and whatever it is. And, you know, they were maligned for being copycats, whatever it is. And now they have, you know, they love IP protection. They love laws because it keeps everyone else down the chain and keeps them from competing up the thing. It, it all, it, so it, it takes on different forms of whatever it is. And, you know, the challenge is, is how do you strike that balance between allowing new greenfield innovation, but still, you know, obviously, you know, protecting and, and, and keeping big companies around because they employ people and they, you know, they're an economic engine and they, they have a place too. So that, you know, I, I, Obviously, I'm more on the greenfield side of things. Um, you know, I'm not saying you should, you know, obviously just break up all the big companies or wherever it is and smash all the walls or wherever it is. I'm not that, not that crazy, but I would definitely like to see a lot more barriers reduced, particularly for small innovators. People getting started. The the biggest question I get from a lot of people all the time is like, how do I even get started when when they look at the litany of of potential legal problems and barriers facing them of getting a product into the U.S. market? It's really daunting and really discouraging. You've mentioned China a bit, and I know you've talked in a, in a variety of places about China being kind of, at this moment, a place where innovation can happen. And I, I wonder if you can just give us like a sense of what that looks like and maybe 
you know, how that fits into what you would like to see in a different global system overall. Yeah. In the Chinese ecosystem, the thing that struck me about the most was that before I went to China, I was taught in the traditional American sort of legal sense that people will not take risks to innovate unless they are promised a monopoly reward. That was just like gospel, motherhood and apple pie to me. Like, why would I do anything I don't have patents? And I, you know, I, and I got off college thinking we should have lots of patents, all those sorts of stuff. This is a good thing, right? And then I landed in China and I, you know, I was told it'd be like a fishing village and it'd be destitute and all sorts of stuff. All these people would tell me, and I landed, I was like, holy cow, this is like a modern city with a bustling ecosystem of people. I'm looking around and like everyone's building a smartphone at a time when smartphones were really hard to build. It was just all over the place. I'm like, hmm. why are people bothering to take the risk to even do anything when it could all be stolen, right? That, that really, it really flew in the face of that profound belief that I had put into me about, about the legal system when I was much younger, right? And so it, that really got me, it bothered me. So I started just yanking on that chain and, and digging deeper and deeper. Like, what is the incentive? What is the mechanism that allows people to recover their investment in, this, in a system where, where you don't have strong patents, you don't have strong copyright protection? And it, it boils down to fundamentally sort of a cultural values thing, I think. China is a communist country. And in the communist set of values, workers are glorified, right? You know, sort of blue collar is not a stigma. <laughs> so when I first went to China, parents would literally say, I hope my child gets a job at a factory. It'll be a better life for them, right? I hope people produce things and build things and own factories, right? And as a result, because mm -hmm. of this sort of very pro-factory stance, lots of people owned factories. There's a lots of means of production. Right. And the way that you made money, the way you, you produced wealth was through production. It wasn't through hmm. rent seeking or, or barriers to IP. It was gaining customers. Right. Mm -hmm. And what is the best way to gain customers, but to go ahead and just interrupt and share it as much as you can. Basically, if you went ahead and you came up with a little module and you said, here's the module, anyone can produce it. Here's the specs for how to integrate it, but my factory will make it the cheapest of everyone else. And my, my know-how, my IP, so to speak, isn't so much about the design, but actually the production, how to make it better, how to make it cheaper, how to make it more reliable, more desirable for you as an end product. <laughs> I'm just going to put it out there and I want everyone to buy and put in their stuff. And that became sort of the, sort of the de rigueur in China. That's what everyone essentially ended up doing. It became a very competitive system around production, optimization of costs, quality, these different factors that became the value, not sort of so much around the design. When you look at it, that perspective, the ecosystem makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. It only kind of works in a system where people really want to have factories, want to be producing stuff, want to be providing that service, right, in the first place versus like an ecosystem where the ideal job is, you know, you have a window office, you kick back and you watch some like green lines on the screen ticking up or something like this and, and shareholder profits, that sort of thing, right? And, and you're not getting your hands dirty on the, you know, on a factory. Like that's a very, those are two very different outcomes, right, you see at the end of the day. Could we move that kind of ethos you're describing into the U.S. in some way? That kind of boils down to sort of like, you know, alternately the question is, what does a jury of peers, what would they, where would they come down in a, in a case, for example? So if you say, I went ahead and I built a factory in the United States and it's incredibly successful and it employs a lot of people, but I violated a couple of patents along the way. And now they're in front of a jury of peers and they look at me and they say, okay, well, why did you do this? Well, 
we had to create a factory making jobs, right? And this other person here, they didn't they didn't do anything. They actually just bought their patents from a troll or whatever it is, and they're they're coming after us. And if you go ahead and shut us down, then we won't have these factories and jobs. If those people say, ah, our values are really on your side, we're going to go ahead and say the patent system is wrong and 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 decide in your favor, then I think you would see more of that culture coming around. But but unfortunately, generally these cases don't go that way. They don't cut that way for whatever reason. Whereas oftentimes, you know, in China, when you have disputes over stuff like this, the government has a fairly pragmatic look at it. I mean, I see this. I mean, we have this culture in America. It's the right to repair culture, mm-hmm. right? When I was a kid, we called them the gearheads, the mm-hmm. people who would uh, would pull their cars in and open them up and change out the systems mm-hmm. to a system that they like. This framing is very interesting because it's almost class-based framing, right? Yeah. The blue collar, mm-hmm. roll up your sleeves, fix your own yep. Tractor. I mean, we have yep. a huge problem now yep. with John Deere mm-hmm. not wanting people to repair their tractors. And the right to repair movement is really gaining steam because there's something profoundly feeling very un-American about the idea that you can't fix right. your own things. Right. And that, you know, there's something I think really powerful there that is building. And I, I see that as the ethos that you're talking about um, quite a bit, that the innovation is in how you not in the idea space for the person who has one good idea and then just lives off of it and their family lives off of it for generations. It's very kind of, you know, old school, traditional way of thinking about things that ought to be a very American way of thinking about it. Yeah. Um, Because people on frontiers had to fix their own stuff. Yeah. I want to jump in here for a little mid-show break to say thank you to our sponsor. How to Fix the Internet is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation's Program in Public Understanding of Science and Technology, enriching people's lives through a keener appreciation of our increasingly technological world and portraying the complex humanity of scientists, engineers, and mathematicians. So a tip of the hat to them for their assistance. What does it look like, Bunny? Let's say we get rid of all the barriers they're getting in your way and all the other tinkerers out there, all the other people who want to build the cool new things. What do we get? What does our world look like? I mean, I think in an ideal world, you know, if we could sort of rewind a whole bunch of bad decisions that were made, we would end up in a situation where, um, you know, the stuff that's that's in our phones today is exactly equivalent to what we're getting right now and like an Arduino or Raspberry Pi. So the mm-hmm. stuff that we have as access at kind of maker level is is identical essentially to pro level. And the reason why I think that's not unrealistic ass is if you look at the last n generations of phones, there hasn't really been a lot of change in like, you know, fundamentally the core specs or anything like this. And so mm-hmm. That to me indicates that the playing field could level. Sort of we've arrived at the point and there's just artificial barriers preventing us from getting there. People talked a lot about sort of like these sort of digital fabrication revolutions and, and um, a lot of building stuff at home. A lot of it didn't materialize. You know, part of it, physics is hard for it. But a lot of it didn't materialize also because like a lot of the submodules and subcomponents that you would want to have available aren't there. You can't just snap in the electronics model that you want inside of like the case they just 3D printed. The best you could do is print a case for an existing phone as opposed to like, you know, take the guts and, and remodel them on the inside. And the th- corresponding thing that would come with an ecosystem that provided these these modules is you would actually also have lots of people who knew how to customize them. 
anyone could build it, anyone could service them. And so we would see much more custom shapes and sizes, uh, much more interesting things that you wouldn't even expect to come out. And there's a whole bunch of examples of these little sorts of GWiz hardware startups that came and went, the GoPro and the Fitbit and all these sorts of things. But I think they would have been very different, much more interesting, much more integrated, much more exciting if we had more modules to play with at the end of the day. If you actually walk into like a biology lab, yep. um, you'll notice a lot of the equipment has like really old school displays on it. They're not connected to the internet. They don't, you know, they just, but they're ungodly expensive, right? Those things would all be modern and cool look and research would be happening at a faster pace with lower costs in a way that whole economic base would be lifted up and you would see a, a lot more interesting thing. And you would see a lot of quirky things come out too. Like people would be like, I'm just really into karaoke or something like this. And so I'm going to, you know, build a karaoke microphone into the into my umbrella. So I always have it with me when I'm traveling or something like this. <laughs> this, is, this is actually a product I saw in China, right? But like, you know, it's the, one of those things that you can do if you're just really into technology and all the production bases there. So everyone has a little itch to scratch, can go ahead and um, scratch that itch without without any sort of barrier to block it. I would love to have my phone be able to talk to my car better, right? Car interfaces are horrible. Yep. I love devices, right? I want the devices to work for me and I want to unleash all the people yeah. who have the technical knowledge to build versions of these things that, that fit what I want, not a cookie cutter set of things. The other piece that I think is really important is we're ending up with the worst of both worlds here, right? We have IoT stuff that's tremendously insecure. We have a lot of this stuff that's horribly insecure. And people could actually build products that fill some of the holes in our current ecosystem. And right now, the reason for some of this regulation is often in the name of security, but it's not actually making us more secure. No. And instead, we end up with things that don't work very well, things that don't talk to each other very well. And then we also don't get the benefit of stuff being more secure. I think there's also just an interesting cultural aspect that could rise out of, particularly if you also were in our magical world reform copyright you could just unleash the fans essentially on all the media and stuff. And you would have like just weirdo bespoke little outfits and gadgets that mimicked what was in the movie. And people would have like these awesome things that the rip mixing burn off of like the Star Wars franchise and making these things that look Star Wars like and, and, and making a living off of selling, you know, gadgets that were inspired by science fiction. But you can't do that right now. You, you like you couldn't. Right. If you wanted to go ahead and take something you saw in Star Wars and build something like that that perform like what you saw or Guardians of the Galaxy or, or Star Trek or whatever these things, someone will definitely come after you and you'll have some very expensive lawyers coming after you. So you're scared from doing that sort of thing. But I, th I think, you know, fundamentally, actually, that, that type of permission to innovate is, is what gets everyday people more excited, I think, more interested in technology. When we talk about securing IoT, ah, that's just for nerds, right? But, you know, my favorite fanfic or whatever it is can now be built and I can buy it and I can play with it, I can modify it, I can mix it with this other franchising and do these types of things. <laughs> people really get into that sort of stuff and that pulls more people into the technology conversation and that just strengthens your overall technology base as opposed to, you know, sort of just being spoon fed, whatever the product marketing guy came up with for Black Friday. We, we had Adam Savage on last season, and he said some of the exact same things that you're saying. I mean, literally with the same franchises, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, about the movement to tinker um, and kind of the right to tinker. Mm -hmm. Here's what he said about that. One of the things that I have also encountered is I once played poker with the uh, head counsel for Lucasfilm, and he was telling me, this is 20 years ago, but he was like, we know everybody who's making stuff out there. 
We know all the stormtrooper costume makers. We know who's making what. He said, we're not interested in stopping someone from making them. We just don't want someone to turn it into a multi-million dollar business, which fair enough, actually. But they wouldn't ever say that publicly. And therein lies the problem. Do you see a movement towards this? Because I think we do on our end, a movement towards this idea that we should be able to tinker in these ways. I think that's what we're fighting for. But do you yourself see that as you do the work that you do? I mean, I hope to God there is a movement for that. Otherwise, I'm wasting my time. (laughs) (laughs) The biggest challenge I see for that really movement catching on is actually reminding people that there was a time when this was legal. And that actually was okay. The the problem I have now when I talk to some people is they just assume this is how it always was. Like somehow in 1770, the the constitutional framers are like, this is the world we envisioned and this is exactly how it was supposed to come out. And that is great. The U.S. was a copyright piracy nation, right? Like, uh, yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah, I mean, no, I mean, like, you know, we, we... we took all the great technology from Europe and steel furnaces and whatever it is and improved them and built railroads and all that sort of stuff. A lot of that stuff came from over, you know, over, over on the other side of the pond, just, just like yep. it's happening, people taking stuff to the other side of the pond from the United States, right? So it's a cycle that repeats itself. But I was born early enough that I remember at a time before the DMCA. Yep. At that time, innovation was permissionless. When you, when you, and when you took off the cover of something, you expected to see a schematic on the inside. That was just a given. Yep. You had to fix stuff yourself and you were just putting stuff together and there were magazines and journals that went around and people were excited to share like how to put things together and the source code was just printed in pages of paper and there was no copyright particularly cl- I mean obviously there's the native copyright was bestowed on print but there's a whole thing about GPL and code lines of code that was no one had talked about no one really worried about that at the time people just typed it in and ran the code and then they shipped a product based on it right it was a great time to be in and that kind of permissionless ecosystem was a lot of fun. It was really inspiring and really interesting to be able to sort of tinker with my hardware in that way. And I really miss it. I really feel like that's one of the things that that is going away from the world today. And people today, not even just kids, but people who are like even just like 20 years old or just getting off contract, they never saw that world. They don't yeah. they don't understand a world that exists in that way. And that, that lack of knowledge of what the how big the horizon can be the fact they were always in that well makes them not dream big and that is the biggest risk actually to the movement is that these that these people who are coming out don't dream big enough don't see a world that could be when they have all this sort of stuff and you know as i get older and older i get people think of me more as that weird curmudgeon who's standing on the lawn and shaking my fist at kids these days <laughs> and that sort of stuff right and, you know, my challenge is to try and find ways to connect with people and inspire them and get those cultural values to sort of return to the to where it was before. I think that's fundamentally how, how that movement maintains steam and keeps going, right? I just think that's that's so beautiful. I mean, I think that the, you know, the thing that we get, if we get this right, is we get people's imaginations bigger. We get people to dream bigger and think of bigger things they could do because they're going to be able to do it. And I also hear what I really love is there is actually a pretty big movement, but we've separated into pillars, right? Hardware hacking feels separate from software hacking, Mm. which feels separate from fan fiction, which Mm -hmm. feels separate from the kinds of, you know, crazy innovation stuff that Adam Savage does where he brings, you know, Wookiees to life (laughs) and has them do things. 
But they're all the same story, right? And if we count all the different pillars up, I think we have a pretty good sized movement. And maybe our work at EFF, but also our work together as people who think about this is to try to tear down all of those kind of phony walls. Because I think if you add all of us together, the farmers that want to fix their tractors, we actually are a pretty big group of people, but we've been segmented in a way that I think isn't serving us. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. That might be part of a deliberate strategy. I don't know, maybe not deliberate. That's a little too good space. That's, you know, it's a consequence of sort of the adversaries trying to split our groups and getting us hyper-focused on these demons, these very, like, high risk legal cases, right? And so as individuals, what happens is that you you get scared of the thing that growls. Yeah. And you don't look at, at the world around you and all your friends that are with you. When the tiger growls, you're looking at the tiger that's growling. And so by just creating these growling tigers around the innovators, they're getting them to, to look and dis- be distracted in different ways and not band together and not actually see the bigger picture for these things. But, I, you know, I think, and, you know, obviously I'm, I'm not a lawyer, this is not legal advice, but I think that a lot of this is just tigers growling. People should not be so afraid to go ahead and poke the tigers at the end of the day. Um, I've been poking tigers my entire life and I still have all my fingers and toes. Uh, I mean, I might, I might lose them one of these days, but, you know, but I think my life is better for feeling okay to do that. That lack of imbuing of that value to go ahead and question authority and to and to look for allies and to sort of like grab all the means at your at your disposal to go ahead and innovate is is missing somewhere from that ecosystem. I know I don't know where we put it back in. I know a lot of people are trying to figure out how to put this back into the ecosystem. But uh definitely, you know, I feel like you know every university should at least have some mandatory course on both ethics and sort of like law, essentially to sort of not law, formal law, like not making lawyers, but like sort of like practically speaking, this is how it's going to go down when you get your first, uh, uh, you know, sort of demand for payment on a patent. You just basically say, no, I'm not going to pay it. You guys are trolls and it's going to be fine. Right? It's a very short course. Yeah, yeah. On patent trolls. And EFF is around as well. And we're happy with our Coders Rights Project and other things. Of course, Bunny is a frequent flyer EFF client, but um, to to help guide people through it. But, you know, we're, we're just one little organization compared to the size of it. I would love to see more classes on fearless innovation in uh, in places. Well, Bunny, we really, really appreciate uh, this conversation. It's been great fun. And very inspiring. Thanks, yeah. I'm glad I was able to make it onto the show. I, I thought we were just getting started. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. It was, it was great fun talking and connecting. Well, that was a really great conversation with a lot to unpack. And I want to ask you, Cindy, of everything that Bunny talked about, what's the one thing that kind of sticks with you that you're going to tell people later today? You know, you go out for dinner and you think, you know, I interviewed Bunny Huang today and here's something that he said that really struck me. What what would that thing be? I mean, I think his vision of the market in Shenzhen is really compelling. And what I appreciate about it is in He's seeing, you know, what to somebody's eyes might look like just a wall of piracy. And he's seeing the innovation behind it. He's seeing what happens if you free people up to rip, mix and burn their tools. They're going to build a whole bunch of cool things. And the cornucopia of 
kind of good ideas, um, some good, some not so good, but different ideas that you get when you open that up. Is It's visually something he saw, right, by going to that market um, and the, the excitement of what we could do if we got all these barriers out of the way and the kinds of innovation we could open up. I think that's the, that vision is the big takeaway. I, I would cheat a bit and add a second one. And that, that the second one is this idea that all of the various fights about freeing up innovation um, are actually connected. So whether you're writing fan fiction or you want to fix your tractor or you want to build hardware from scratch, and if you add all of us up together who are in, who are trying to innovate in that space, there's a lot of us and that we could be a stronger political and social force. That's exactly what stuck with me. You have the, the kind of car culture of the 50s or something like that yep. at some level that you can, I think, compare to the maker movement. And we've talked about that before, but it never really occurred to me that when you combine all these movements, it is probably more people at this point that care about this than ever cared about it 75 years ago um, when it wasn't a thing, but also it was a smaller thing in some ways because it just these laws didn't touch on every single aspect of the work that we do. I think that's right. And it's it's core to the adversarial interoperability work that we've been doing or competitive compatibility. But it also reminds me of the conversation we had with Anil Dash last season where he was talking about the K-pop yeah. kids building Hurdle, a version of Hurdle or other kinds of things. Again, it's it's not just the technical side. It's the cultural side as well, where we really will see an explosion of innovation if we get some of these barriers out of the way. Well, that's it for this episode of How to Fix the Internet. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to get in touch about the show, you can write to us at podcast at EFF.org or check out the EFF website to become a member, donate, or look at some of the merch we have available. I don't know where you are, but it's cold here and a hoodie is just right for wearing indoors and outdoors. This podcast is licensed Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International and includes music licensed Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 unported by their creators. You can find their names and links to their music in our episode notes or on our website at EFF.org slash podcast. Our theme music is by Nat Keefe of Beatmower with Reed Mathis. How to Fix the Internet is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation's Program in Public Understanding of Science and Technology. See you next time. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Cindy Cohen. This podcast is licensed Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International and includes the following music, licensed Creative Commons Attribution 3.0, unported by its creators. Common Ground by Airtone, featuring Simon Littlefield. Probably Shouldn't by Jay Lang, featuring Mr. Yesterday. Additional Beds and Alternate Theme Remixes by Gaeta Harris.